Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your co-host, Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution. And today, the Pacific Century is extremely pleased to be able to welcome General David H. Berger, Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. General Berger has been Commandant since July 11th. 2019. He is a graduate of Tulane University and commissioned in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1981. He's commanded at every level, including during Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, and in Haiti. He's also been commander in the Pacific. And we are actually going to talk to General Berger today about how he and the Marine Corps are beginning the process of transitioning to face a new challenge, the challenge of China in the 21st century. General Berger, welcome to the Pacific Century. Well, thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your time, and I think we should just launch uh, right into it. Um, I think most of our of our listeners, of course, who uh, follow national security issues, have heard you talk about the China challenge. Have heard you talk about uh, the role that the Marines will play. But let me start you off with a uh, with a provocative question: Are the Marines ready for China today? Absolutely, yeah, uh, but. Pacing, the ING part of pacing, I take um, literally and figuratively that our, that pacing challenge is moving too. So um, we're, we're very ready today. We, we're very capable of handling what the I think the nation would need us to do today. But status quo five years from now will be a problem. I think that's a that's a huge point. Is is uh, a lot of times people don't look at the fluid and dynamic nature uh, of the competition. Certainly, you've had a uh, a long career uh, in the Marine Corps. You have a, a longitudinal perspective. Um, how would you say the challenge specifically for the Marines is different today than it was ten years ago, and will be different in your view as you're shaping a force for twenty thirty? Yeah, I think in uh, probably several ways it is uh, new to me, perhaps not new over the course of a longer period of history, but new to me. New in that for the first time, we don't enjoy a large margin of military advantage over over uh, an ad, a potential adversary, which that was never the case before. Um, second, I think, uh, and probably related to that, deterrence um, takes on a different framework in that uh, construct. I think conventional deterrence, um, we understood. I think the people in the 70s and 80s had a phenomenal background in it, and we learned some from that. But we could always muscle our way through. And and if, and, and if deterrence didn't work, we had to muscle to back to, you know, to respond and back it up. All, all that is, is a little bit different moving ahead. I'm also learning um, in a different way than uh, I think our predecessors did in the 50s and 60s and 70s. The pace of change, they, they, had, a, they had a pacing threat too, but it was not moving at the velocity and in the uh, laterally like this one is. So our ability, I've heard in this building a, a description of elasticity in the past few days, which I thought was a fascinating way to describe what we're going to need, because we don't actually know when there's two moving objects in space and time, we don't know exactly where there will be. So the elasticity, the ability to adapt to whatever we construct for a force, can we mold it to the environment that we're going to face a few years down, down the road? That's, that's all new. All that is not something that I've 
I've seen in 40 years. To, to that point specifically, um, General Hyten, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who's stepping down this month uh, in some of his last public testimony, in fact, indicated that in his view, he said, we're, we're getting killed by the bureaucracy uh, of, of developing weapons, fielding weapon systems. In fact, he seemed to indicate that the department was in general, not just not the Marines, but the department in general was not well suited to respond to this elasticity that you just mentioned. How does it look from the Marines' perspective? You are the most uh, expeditionary, the most amphibious, obviously, of, of our forces, the, the first responders uh, on the ground in many ways uh, compared to you know, an air immediate response, but the Marines getting in there. Um, th- certainly that elasticity is, is critical, and yet the, the vice chief, the vice chairman, indicated that, that that's where we're weak. How, how does it look from your perspective? Um, I think he's, uh, I, I would agree with the way he characterizes it. I would probably look through, I look at it through a different lens. From a practical standpoint, you can make the argument, you can understand why the the bureaucracy that we have today for procurement for fielding systems is what it is. We, we created that in some cases ourselves because we mismanaged money. We had efforts that led to nowhere. So each time that that happens, you're going to get more oversight, more bureaucracy. So I think we shouldn't be surprised. Um, and, and it was actually okay in a time when um, you, were your only, you were your own pacing threat. <laughs> we just had to get a better version of ourselves next year. And there was, I mean, number two was pretty far behind. But when that's not the case, when you have, a, in my own verbiage, a peer uh, military capability, a peer adversary, Okay, now now we're in a different world. And and add on top of that, because we're an open society and culture, they they have stolen uh, and reduced the development time your adversary has. So it's not even a fair game anymore. It's not like they're taking two years to get to somewhere and you're taking two years to get to somewhere. In fact, they're borrowing one of your two years. You know, so it's not. Uh, it's an unfair. Uh, they have an unfair advantage from. Not, uh, from that perspective. So I, the bureaucracy, I'd agree with. I understand why it's in place. Uh, that is the proper role of oversight, but we will need to accept risk in fielding, developing fielding equipment that we we reduce that risk through the bureaucracy. Now we're going to have to re- increase the risk, reduce the bureaucracy, but it's going to come with some risk. I mean, one argument is that the U.S. is, is in fact, inherently risk averse. I mean, it, partly it's a, it's a function of being a hegemon and having set up an international system that that you prefer, that that benefits you and your allies. And so you're risk averse and not wanting to see that uh, deteriorate. On the other hand, you have to accept risk in order to to protect it. Um, the, the challenge that we seem to face in the Pacific today is precisely how much risk are we really willing to accept. And I think our, our listeners are probably a little bit more familiar with thinking about the Navy overall. They're, they're, they're used to thinking about big hulls. They're used to thinking about aircraft carriers, maybe a little bit more familiar with thinking about um, a, a battle in the sky and contested skies. Can you talk a little bit about that peer competitor, that number two now being essentially a, a nearly an equal, from the Marine perspective, where is it specifically that it challenges the Marines' ability to, to do their job? The, 
The regime that the PRC, the PLAN, have created was intended, designed to do a certain thing, and it's built, it's purpose built for that. Um, we have our, our history in the Marine Corps is as a joint, a forcible entry capability. We were the ones that had the amphibious forcible entry skill set, tools, toolkit, and experience to, to do that anywhere we needed to do it. And we still do. But now we're faced with a, a purpose-built defensive mechanism in depth that's designed to, and you know, intended to prevent that from happening. So hence the, the design for the future of the Marine Corps has to counter that in an asymmetric way. We can't have a bigger landing force landing across a beach. That's not going to work. So our, our, I think... Uh, long way of saying that I, my, my read on their de their defensive approach is is a defense in depth push the U.S. out very far hold each other at bay at great distance. It, within that distance is exactly where they would like to operate because then they can make advances incrementally under the threshold of conflict and just keep moving without a, without a fight ever happening. Meanwhile, we could sit and say, yeah, but they're. Deterrence is working. There's no conflict between us and China. Back to your point earlier, what is it actually we're trying to, we, we hope to, to deter? Is it aggression? Is it expansion? Is it coercion? What is it actually we're trying to deter? So I think the, the great part about the Marine Corps, though, is we have a long history of being able to adapt. We are smaller. We're, we should be more agile. Well, on the one hand, um, the thing that we were purpose-built for in years past, a large forcible entry followed by a land campaign, is not, not how we're going to need to do it in the future. Not, not in order to achieve deterrence, not in order to prevail in a conflict. So a few years ago, there was uh, a lot of talk as we were beginning to draw down in the Middle East after nearly a generation, half a generation of warfare in which the Marines were in the thick of the fight, they were they had moved away from an amphibious uh, positioning or posturing towards you know acting much like a like a, like the army was doing in the region. There was a lot of talk about getting back to your amphibious roots. You've just mentioned that though the very traditional way of forcible entry followed by a large land invasion is not what we'll be doing. So. Uh, are the Marines getting back to their amphibious roots? And if so, as you envision the force going forward, what does that mean in terms of the of the Indo-Pacific, in terms of contested island chains uh, and the like? I think uh, getting back to our amphibious roots is exactly what we are doing and need to do. Not because um, it's an old bumper sticker or uh, we have an, uh, an affinity for it historically, but because... In every military aspect, we need to look for where we have a margin of advantage. Subsurface is a clear one. In my uh, own estimation, so is, so is amphibious capability, so is expeditionary naval capability. In other words, our ability to put in the U.S., our Navy and Marine Corps together and to operate as a, as a naval maritime force, unrivaled. Okay, that's a huge military advantage that we should leverage. Um, you could have big armies, big air forces. So you're look you're looking for where do you where you might either currently have a margin of advantage that you can expand or one you can create. That that equals deterrence. 
So far as it's operating amphibious, it's operating expeditionary, but in a very distributed, a different way than perhaps somebody who would look on you know, Netflix and look up a World War II amphibious movie and go, God, that's what I love about the Marines. Look at all that. Well, we're going to operate in a different way. We're going to make it very difficult for an adversary to target us, very difficult for them to sense us, to find us. So you've talked about um, making the Marines more survivable, uh, more lethal. Um, obviously, you have to recapitalize in terms of amphibious ships and, and light ships. Um, what what do you think? Again, it, it's easier, I think, for some folks to think about, well, you know, how many aircraft carriers do we need? How many F-35s do we need? Well, and of course, the Marines will be operating F-35s. Uh, and critically, you'll have the, the capability that will potentially allow you to work with allies like Japan off of their current helicopter carriers, but can easily be fitted for the F-35B. Uh, but, but more generally, we, we very much think of the Marines uh, operating in small units, um, small fire teams working in, in ways that are different from, as you're putting it, the large land invasion. Um, how what beyond the big ticket items, what are some of the, the real things that you are looking at, the capabilities uh, that you need going forward that is going to maintain a credible deterrent force against against the Chinese? Uh, I would say uh, offer a couple things. My, our premise is, and this is contrary to, to the view held by some, that two um, great powers can hold each other at bay at great distance with very precise weapons, and that will equal deterrence. Against some adversaries, true. Not, not against PRC. If you understand their strategy, that plays exactly right into it. So my premise is our assumption is that you have to have a stand-in force, as we call it, in close. So what, what are the capabilities that that stand-in force needs in order to be effective? It does have to have an organic sensing capability. It has to have an organic lethal capability that can hold an adversary's land or maritime targets at risk all the time. It has to be light. It has to be distributed. So it's very difficult for somebody to collect against you. And it has to have organic tactical lift that can reposition itself dynamically inside an adversary's collection targeting cycle. In other words, even if they did find you, you have the organic mobility that you can relocate yourself inside whatever their cycle is, you can move within that if you if you need to. So that we need, and we will have within two years, we'll have a ground-based anti-ship missile capability that is vehicle-borne and autonomous, unmanned. We'll have the we'll have some of the sensing systems that allow us to organically. Um, because I, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, any crisis or conflict is going to be going to all the domains. So you need to have you need to have a, a resilient enough collection system that if they took out one or two nodes, you can still you can still paint a picture of what's in front of you. Survivability, in other words, I think to some equals how thick is your armor, and, and that's not mm -hmm. the approach. That is true on a, on a tank. That is true on a ship. It's not. It's a different lens that we're going to use for the the maritime littoral uh, forces that we're building 
their 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 survivability is their mobility is their um, speed is their ability to deceive to decoy to collect to conceal all those things equal survivability it's more of a system v systems approach than it is how thick is your armor turning to the the PLA for for a minute. Um, can you explain a little bit to the to the readers who your analog competitor adversary? I mean, if you're thinking of war planning, is within the PLA? Um, do they have a Marine Corps that is similar to ours? Do they have capabilities similar to ours? In other words, who do you have to target most directly in order to fight? Um, you highlighted it. There, they had a fairly small Marine Corps until a couple of years ago. It was nascent and it was really, they didn't need a Marine Corps because they weren't moving anywhere. So you don't, why would you have a Marine Corps if you're, if you're the extent of your horizon is, you know, 13 miles out, you don't, you really don't need a big Marine Corps. They are growing it rapidly. They are building amphibious ships and expanding the size of their Marine Corps. And we should not be surprised at that. As, as PR, as the, as the, the Chinese government it tries to establish both the Belt and Road over land and the Belt and Road at sea and bases from Djibouti to South America, well, you need a Marine Corps that protects your national interests. So we shouldn't, that is my analog counterpart, and they are very much mimicking um, what, I think you could say the same for their whole joint force. They're very much mimicking the way that the U.S. military is built, and in our case, very much mimicking the way the Marine Corps operates. They don't have F-35s. They don't have big deck amphibs that can do what we can do, but they're moving very quickly to try to catch up. Doesn't su- should not surprise us. So you just mentioned the, uh, the joint force um, on the Chinese side. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your assessment about how well that joint force works? One of the, the things that I think, again, our, our, our thinking has to catch up with realities. For a very long time, we looked at a China that was, as, as you just pointed out, not very expeditionary, uh, planes that didn't fly out of sight of land, basically a coastal defense force, um, you know, a 1950s style uh, land force. Um, but they have worked very hard to integrate forces, to have joint operations. From the Marine perspective, again, because your role will be unique in a conflict. How do you assess how good their joint force is? What what really are we facing when we look at the potential of a Chinese military, which hasn't been tested in battle like we have over the past generation? How do you think about them as a, as an actual adversary? On the capability side, um, I respect where they are with their capabilities. We should not make them 10 feet tall, but nor are they the... Um, nor are they a small but growing force that may 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 amount to something in a few years. It's it's beyond that. It's not. We should not make them also ten feet tall. They have reorganized themselves in the, as a joint force into the equivalent of regional combatant commands. Not surprising, and they're exercising in that regard. They are operating as you you accurately highlight. Their their exercises are now look kind of joint. Now they're. How efficient, how um, proficient they are, you know, that's another, you know, we will, I think time will tell, but they are clearly trying to match up in a combined arms sort of maneuver way of matching bombers with sensing systems, with ground forces and trying to synchronize all that. So they clearly have the intent. They have a game plan. 
battlefield, you know, how much combat experience, battle, battlefield experience, and how much does that factor in? Uh, that's a difficult one. You can't really quantify it. But I think what, here's what I will look for. When they, do, when, when they get to the point where they're doing force on force, and we can watch it, watch it happen and see how dynamically they can make decisions, we should pay attention to that. Again, not make them 10 feet tall, but that's really the truest test is when you're actually operating force on force against a thinking adversary and operate, you know, an, an opposition force and it's and it's free play. OK, now that's kind of the ultimate test in tactical decision making, because it's not there's no script. They're trying to get an advantage over you and you're trying to do it over them. So I think we should not no, we're we, we we're making a mistake if we think. To your point, uh, they have a centralized decision making. They don't have any combat experience. You know, we, we list the 10 reasons why they're why they're not really a real competitor. They're not where we are by a long shot. They're they're moving there. And when I see if, when I start to see force on force and, this, and, and if they can begin to make decisions in the kind of OODA loop sort of fashion at speed. It's a good indicator of where they are, I think. And it. And will we actually be able to see that happening? Uh, do we have the access to know that the, this is how they're training and planning and thinking? That will be very, very difficult. There are no pig society and intentionally, you know, not not going to share, not going to allow us to easily to collect. Am I confident we can determine that? I am. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me let me switch then away from the Chinese joint force and ask you uh, briefly about the U.S. joint force. Um, obviously, we are in a uh, yet another um, rebuilding, so to speak, of the military after a, a half a generation of war in the Middle East. Uh, that itself, of course, was coming off of a 40-year Cold War uh, and, then, and then the actual wars of, of the 1940s. Um, of course, our military has changed dramatically. It, it, it's interlinked. It has much better, first of all, it's structured, as you pointed out, in terms of the Chinese with combatant commands. That's obviously what we have, global combatant commands. Um, but as you look to the OT mission that, that you have, how do you see our joint force evolving now to take cognizance of and to shape itself to deal with a peer competitor, the likes of which we, we clearly haven't had since the Cold War, and and quite honestly, possibly even since the 1940s and its sort of global capabilities? I think uh, you, you hint at the first part of it, which is in our training and our exercises, um, heretofore, everything we've needed to deal with, not everything, but most things that we've had to deal with have been regional, could be contained, one combatant commander, or at most a couple, um, it's bounded geographically, um, so our system can handle that. When you get into integration on a global scale, global integration of fires, global integration of messaging in the information environment, global integration of maneuver, okay, this is another level. Uh, so our exercises now are more and more and more intended to exer- to move those muscles along so that we can... If, if the expansion of Chinese influence exceeds close in region and problems become now, uh, okay, a conflict, we should anticipate, be ready for a, a more global look, then our system has to adapt to that. I think in terms of risk, which you, you mentioned early on, probably 15 minutes ago, 
I suppose there's multiple frameworks, but one that several of us are using now are a series of lenses. How do you allocate the risk over time to get where you need to be? In other words, risk in time now versus two years versus five or 10 years down the road. Risk in, in a domain. How, might, how are we willing to accept and allocate risk and mitigate what we, what we, uh, what we accept? Um, there's a geographical uh, allocation of risk. Where, where around the world can we accept risk in order to do that emphasize over there? Um, and then there's probably a prioritization allocation of risk versus specific adversaries, specific threats to the United States, which the 2018 NDS moved along, uh, helped us think through uh, some racking and stacking of adversaries, of threats to the to U.S. national security. Now I think this current national defense strategy and draft now will probably refine that and take it to another level. So for me and se a couple, several of us, I think looking across multiple, uh, the framework using multiple lenses of risk, very helpful. And how does the joint force need to adapt? Uh, just a couple more questions, uh, General. I want to be um, respectful of your time. Let me let me ask you about allies and partners. Um, it's one thing for the U.S. Air Force to uh, train with the or, or work with the Japanese Air Self Defense Forces or or the Australian Air Force. Uh, obviously, for the Navy as well uh, to work with with allied navies. Who who do the Marines work with? mostly in the Indo-Pacific in terms of allies, who has capabilities similar to yours, who has capabilities that mesh with yours. Um, when you look forward into that very flexible, distributed, dynamic environment, do you think you'll be fighting alongside anyone or are the Marines going in alone? I would say the, the, at, the, at, at the top of the list would be um, Japanese Self-Defense Force, Australian uh, Defense Force, the South Korean Marines, the Filipino Marines, countries like that that we have trained alongside for decades. Um, very comfortable operating in them alongside of them because we match up well size-wise and capability-wise. We don't come in with a giant footprint and a and a doctrine that says, here's, you know, you must do this and then you can work with the US military. We're very, very much tailor ourselves to who we're working with, which you have to do. I think all those countries have very capable Marine Corps, maritime forces, and in the Japanese Self-Defense Force, it's the Amphibious Rapid Deployment Brigade, the ARDB. It's like a, 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 a mu. It's like a it's like a version of the Marine Corps for them. To the the ability to project to their southwest to their islands is really they saw the need for that three or four years ago. All that's. All those are in a, in a tier that we are very comfortable operating alongside. I, I would say just in the how portion, your second part, we need we need to put our ego aside here a bit. And the, the tendency at sometimes at, at certain points in the past has been they don't have the same level of capabilities. We can't count on them uh, politically when the when the going gets tough. You know, it's three or four reasons why. Uh, we just need to plan on unilaterally. That that those days are past. Every one of those countries has a role. We need to find them in the Secretary Austin's kind of vernacular of integrated deterrence. Every, everybody has a role. You know, that you can't be okay. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have the right radio. So uh, we're not going to work with you. No, that the humility part matters. 
Uh, and there is absolutely a role in, in uh, integrated deterrence for every every like-minded military. For us, I, I rattle off the four or five that we work with most often. Uh, a quick, actually, you mentioned Japan. So just a, a quick question on any updates on the Tenma replacement facility. How is that moving with Japan? Obviously, that's been now a generational issue. Uh, it's, it started in the mid-90s. Um, I was down in Okinawa a number of years ago and, and saw just how congested it is where our Marines have to do fixed wing, uh, you know, rotary takeoff and landings in, in the midst of schools yeah. and, and buildings. Where do we stand with all that? It's moving along um actually probably faster than some people thought that there will i think until the very end there will be some resistance i've lived in okinawa for uh, uh, with my family there so i understand enough about the local um, politics and the local populace to understand there's going to be friction all along the way but the central government the national government in japan has been very clear and driven uh, in a certain direction at and and not gotten bogged down not gotten stopped in uh, for uh, internal politics or environmental reasons they've overcome all of that it is slow uh, but if you were to go there this afternoon you would see the essence of a airfield off of uh, what 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 is camp schwab right now it's it's coming to fruition so final question yeah. you've, you've just mentioned okinawa for for anyone who's uh, visited there it is a beautiful yeah place to be. I mean, we obviously there are lots of issues and problems and being someone who lived in Japan for years, I'm very well aware of those. But if we just look at garden oh. spots, Okinawa is beautiful, but you've, you've served in a lot of places. The Marines are everywhere. Tell us where the, the best place it is to be a Marine. Where, where is it just, it's, it's a great place to be, a great place to be young, a great place to be with family. Um, where was your favorite place? Where do you want to go back to? Boy, that's a tough question. You know, most Marines, I think, will uh, not most Marines, some Marines will say I'm an East Coast Marine or I'm a West Coast Marine or I'm a Hawaii Marine. I've had like the luck of being on all of them equally a and in Japan. I think when we were raising kids, uh, when our kids were young, we had a great time in Okinawa and a great time in North Carolina. Um, at other points in our career, we've had three tours in uh, Camp Pendleton, California. Phenomenal time out there. I had never been stationed in Hawaii until I was a general officer. And I'm like, well, I understand why they never sent me out here before, because it's too much fun out here. <laughs> so it's uh, Marines that are stationed in Hawaii, and I'm sure sailors and soldiers, too. I mean, it's like we lived there for three years, and everybody loves it out there. I, I, I don't have a single place. Hell, I, we, we lived in 29 Palms for two years, and it's the best, you know, some of the best training you can year-round. And same in Yuma. We lived in Yuma for three years. And some people would go, God, you Arizona, it's a hot desert. I'm like, yeah, but you can train. It's a, if you're if you're into training, that's the place to go. I, I don't have a single place at different points in my life in our career. Uh, we've enjoyed different places for different reasons. I think because our, our age of our kids or whatever, you know, was in a different place. Sure. Well, sir, you're very diplomatic. I think we're going to have to get Mrs. Berger on she the show and ask her because I think she's going to be more honest. That's 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 my take. Well, sir, thank you, uh, General Berger. Um, thank you so much for taking time with us today. I mean, this is obviously um, a, a critical moment. Uh, the president and and the general secretary of, of China, Xi Jinping, had a summit yesterday. Um, 
the U.S. is is very forthright about the problems we face, um, but at the end of the day, there is a tip of the sphere the, of the spear out in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and if we ever need to use it, the Marines are going to be right there. And so, your willingness to walk us through some of the issues you face, and more importantly, how you're thinking about it as you shape the force going forward, we appreciate it. So, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for having me on there. It's this phenomenal discussion. Thanks. Well, that was an extraordinary conversation with General Berger. This is Misha Oslin, thanking you for listening to the Pacific Century, and we will see you again next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.